All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. You know, you can't watch the news, you can't listen to a podcast or talk show when invariably the dangerousness of our cities doesn't come up. And part of this is the untethering of our values from our laws and our laws from our everyday lives. We've exchanged first principles for fungible rules on the daily. The result is chaos. You're seeing it every day. Those who believe government can answer all the problems are as wrong as those who think it can't have something to do with a solution. Now, somewhere in the middle, there's a role, but it ain't to keep up doing what we are doing, pouring money into it because it's a colossal fail. It's a mess. Or as one observer of Portland, Oregon put it, it appears to be the controlled demolition of our city. And so it is all along what I call the West Coast messed coast. Another put it, we are euthanizing one of the finest little big cities of America. And that's what's going on. That's what's going on in Portland, Oregon, my hometown. So the result is chaos. And watching this controlled demolition of the homeless, the on the streets, the fentanyl, which has created a city full of zombies, and watching are the leaders we put into place. We elected them. These people were elected. And they believe that dollars are the answer because that's the only quantifiable way to show that they're doing something, right? Something. Kevin Dahlgren has been watching this for decades. He's a drug and alcohol counselor who does literal street work. And I really respect that because I've seen people who can work wonders talking to folks on the street. And he keeps track of two cities in his portfolio. He keeps track of Seattle, but especially Portland, Oregon. And he is the first person I've ever seen, the first person I've ever seen who gets respect and attention from the local media. I don't know how he got it. I don't know what he did to, to get it, except they respect him and they're listening to him now. He's a guy who doesn't think that dollars are the answer to the so-called homeless issue because it ain't about homes. It's about drugs. Kevin Dahlgren, welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast with me, Victoria Taft. And why? when did you come to the realization that it really wasn't about putting people in homes, it was about putting people in sobriety. Excellent question. First of all, thanks for having me on, Victoria. Um, I've been working in social services for 28 plus years, but also before that I was volunteering. So I've actually been on the streets of Portland, Oregon since the late 80s. So I have really extensive experience doing this. As a teenager, I volunteered with my church doing uh, homeless outreach. Uh, going to the soup kitchens in downtown Portland at a place called Bologna Joe's, which is kind of a famous uh, uh, food soup kitchen from many, many, many years ago. Did you night, do Night Strike too? I did actually a few times, long, long time ago. I was so young, you know, much longer hair. <laughs> um, so to answer your question, when did I start noticing? Well, it did take time because let me just share with you, when you work in social services – 
one thing you learn really quickly is to know your place and never question authority. It very it felt very cult like. I worked in the nonprofit sector for decades. I've also worked for the city, the county, the state, faith-based programs and for-profit programs. So I have an extensive experience working in all different, you know, uh types of programs. Um it, I tell people when I do public speaking is I admit first that I was part of the problem because I didn't speak up it, or more so I didn't know better. I just trusted my supervisors. I trusted my elected officials that we were going to solve this. I went to the social services like anybody does is because they're passionate. You hope so. I wanted to end this crisis. I felt deeply about this. My little brother was on the streets of Portland, Oregon with a meth addiction. So I had this personal connection to wanting to get into this field. Um, so it took a few years for me to really start noticing that it felt like we were part of the problem because we weren't really trying to solve the problem. And every year, my employers, the major ones, I worked at all the major homeless shelters, the ones getting the most money to this day, continuously asking for money to end this crisis. And as time went on, I kept think I kept noticing the homeless crisis continues to grow and we're adding more shelters, we're adding more employees, we're adding more funding, we're adding more everything. But I kept asking, well, what is the solution? What do we, what is, what we're doing? Is it making any difference? And they always just said, Kevin, don't worry about it, right? Well, we're not you required know, to and, have any results, any quantifiable results. Yeah, and they're, they're not required. It took me a long time to notice that. But as I kind of moved up the little food chain and got promoted, I started realizing, wow, it was specifically written to a majority of all grants in a lot of these West Coast cities to not have measurable results, to not have metrics, to not have oversight, correct. And in fact, really, this, the, this, the strict rule is this, is never give them who, what, when, where, why. And that those are the five. And I, and I say this with personal experience, with some of these major nonprofits, they, they aren't, they're not required to tell you who they're working with, how they're doing it, where they're doing it, how much money they're spending, anything. You can't even get a name from them. And they've done this for decades and got away with it because they've convinced, they've convinced others that fund them like the state, the state basically, or even the city and the county that we're your saviors. We're going to end this crisis. We just need more money to do it. And so because that that can be kind of intimidating because working with the homeless is a very challenging work. You know, these are complex individuals with a lot of drug issues, a lot of mental illness issues. It's not like everybody wants to do this. So when someone comes to you and says, we're going to do this, we're going to save this and, and, you know, resource city, you of course throw money at them because you think, wow, if you can end this crisis, that's great. That's a load off of my back. Right. But they never, ever had a plan. And, what really shifted, what I've noticed, the big shift, because again, this has been 30 years, is about eight to 10 years ago, there was this major shift in policy where the focus seemed to be more on social justice than anything else. And so these progressive views got very radicalized and it, and it became less about the homeless and ending homelessness and more about their social justice agenda such as body autonomy and harm reduction and housing first and uh, capitalism is the root of all evil. And, you know, like you'll hear this from virtually every social worker that votes a certain <laughs> party that 
uh, capitalism created homelessness and homelessness will not end until capitalism ends. Capitalism ends. And I'm like, well, okay, explain that to me. Help me understand what you mean by that. And they can never answer because they're just saying these big, broad stroke things and just for, you know, sadly, everyone kind of adopted it, at least enough people to vote the right people in, or let's just say the wrong people in, Mm -hmm. into our city and county. Oh, uh, they saw it on a they saw it on a sign state, in front actually. of somebody's house. They saw it on a sign in front so of somebody's really, house is what they saw. That's where they get yep. that. So Some really, bumper sticker. I, I, I noticed really is it started about eight years ago, but really in the last four years, it just it's got out of control. Right, the riots happened. They burned down our city, and sadly, they they were accepted by our government. The government basically apologized to them for everything and said. We, we, we are so sorry for everything. We're going to bend the knee, whatever you need. And of course, that's like the worst thing we could have ever done. And so this is where we're at today. And now you've got hot and cold running bums. And I say bums, I, because, you know, I'm, I'm a person with, not without portfolio. I mean, I've, I've tended to the homeless and I've gone to work with city impact and the tenderloin in San Francisco. And basically I haven't been there since since the pandemic, but uh, I went pre-pandemic and I saw what was going on then. You could see the fentanyl moving into the city and you could see how people who used to be lying on the street, they'd be at least in little societal groups, right? They'd be in little groups of people with them amongst themselves and you could see them breathing and you could take them food and you could talk to them and they would have, you could have a sentient conversation, a conversation that made some sense as well. And here we were and then fentanyl came into being, and between two trips up to the Tenderloin, because I was in Southern California at the same at that time, um, fentanyl came in, and all of a sudden I was wondering if that person was alive or not on the street. Many fewer people on the street because San Francisco had its harm reduction and housing first policies, and what that meant was fentanyl addicts were put into apartments so they could go there to die and overdose. Yeah, uh, that's actually pretty common is with the housing first model, a person is much more highly likely to die the day they move in than than haven't been on the streets because now they're isolated in an apartment where there's no wraparound care, no one's monitoring them, and they end up using more possibly to celebrate or something or, or they feel safe enough to have the drugs out of the open. People don't steal from them. They're dying of overdoses. Uh, I've I've lost a good dozen clients the day they moved into a housing first apartment. Wow! The day, the, literally the night, the very the, the same day, they got extra high and died, and is devastating. And I've been to the Tenderloin. I was there a couple months ago doing homeless outreach, and it's a wild scene. And uh, I actually uh, checked into one of the safe injection sites, uh, and they. I was actually there to get a tour, but they thought I was a client. <laughs> so they guided me through this hallway and put this, you know, wristband thing on me and sat me down and handed me tin foil and a straw to smoke fentanyl. And I was like, wait, stop. No. No, we should have taken it. Just see what else and, I can give you. We've spoken yeah. with a gal up there who was shocked by what was going on up in San Francisco. And she went to these harm reduction centers and got all the paraphernalia, put it up in a big old pile. And she decided that, you know, she, Erica Sandberg, and she put it on the, she put it on Twitter and was shocked. Yeah, Erica, exactly. I, I've seen that video. It's shocking. It's like we, we are giving the tools to people with uh, a lack of rational thought and critical thinking, the ability to now use more 
And what it's doing is it's killing them. And what these harm reduction activists are saying is that we are giving them their rights back, their rights to use, because this is like body autonomy. I said, well, what you're doing, because, you know, in all harm reduction literature and posters, it's always big hearts and we love you and smiles, right? And so what I say to that is what you're doing is you're loving these people to death. You've somehow pasted love to all of this as if this is a good thing. I mean, these are people that have very likely gone through trauma, and there's a reason why they're using heavily, probably to hide some dark memories. Our job as a, as a community, as a society, is to get these people into treatment, get these people mental health care, and uh, help them resolve these demons they have. And if we do this, they're not going to have the desire to use anymore. It's cheaper than housing. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot cheaper because the housing, you know, the affordable, I, I should have added to the social justice movement is affordable housing. And that's like, I've I always said, like, uh, an unachievable like goal. Step, it's never, it's never yeah. ending. Feedback well, loop. And that's what I've always said is it's, it is unachievable. And if, when people ask me, well, so Kevin, what's your solution? I said, well, the solution is in, its, in the approach. You go out every day like I do, boots on the ground. You get to know these individuals. A lot of them have a history of addiction, mental illness. Our number one goal should be to help them uh, reach their fullest potential. And if that's the case, most of them become self-sufficient. When a person becomes self-sufficient, you no longer have to have the affordable housing argument because we're not housing them for life. Because once they're self-sufficient, guess what? They're now working. They're now being productive members of society, which I have seen hundreds and hundreds of times if you do the job right. What we are doing is we are enabling them to the point of dependency and offering them everything to continue this, really build this homeless industrial complex. And I say this with firsthand experience working at these programs. This is what they want. I, I believe you. I uh, want to go into the NGOs for which you've worked in a minute, but I do want to bring attention. I don't know if that was your video or it was uh, maybe it was Brandon Farley's video uh, in Portland in which a woman who's on the street and living out of a tent said that, you know, like we live here, we just moved here, we get uh, our meals over here. And she named all the, she named the place where she goes and I knew exactly where it was. And, and then we do this and then we do that. And, and then we just, sit around and they're loving us to death. That's what they're doing. They're gonna, they're killing us. The piece of cake lady. Piece of cake lady. She said, yes. Course. She said, uh, that was me. Okay. Uh, that was December 31st of this last year. So the day before this year. And uh, I asked her, I said, what's it like to be homeless in Portland? And she just thought for a moment, she said, it's a piece of cake. She talked about the blind <laughs> Che house. And she yes. said, this is why we're doing this. And I'm like, I can't believe she's saying, right? Like, I'm taking a picture of it. <laughs> and this isn't, of course, every homeless person out there, but it is a lot of them. So, yeah, that's Wendy. And, you know, I got cri not criticized, obviously, everybody, but a handful of people says, how dare you do this? This isn't all homeless. I said, well, I never said it was all homeless. This is her. This is what she sees every day. And she, as a an adult woman has every right to express herself. And by the way, if I had not done this video, she would not be where she is today. She's now living at home in Utah, off the streets and in treatment. And that would have never happened without this video because that video is oh, uh, her so family. Great. Her family thought she was dead and actually saw this video because it went viral after no. Elon Musk found this video and it, and it kind of acknowledged it. So it blew up from like 5,000 to 9 million. 
and his her family saw the video and said, "Oh my God, Wendy is alive!" And so it's a was a beautiful ending. So what I'm saying is that that's another reason to go out there and do this is nobody else is out there really documenting this as much as they should, you know, getting the truth from the streets and and letting these homeless people share their experiences and what their worldview is. I think that's really important because to solve a problem, you have to understand a problem, right? Rather than just sort of sitting around in a big office and being like, we need more housing first, you know, or more apartments. I'm like, hey, why don't you come out with me and do outreach? Because over 50% of every homeless person I've ever met says, I won't accept any housing ever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yet they're saying housing ends homelessness. Well, homelessness of, is not a housing issue. It's homelessness not. is an addiction issue. It is a mental health issue. And, Amen. I mean, and it really, is. it's a trauma issue. It's, you know, there's trauma. There's a lot more yes. going on than housing. Yeah. I noticed that uh, when I was in California, I noticed that working with uh, a tribe of homeless folks um, and uh, we, you know, our church worked with them and we just came alongside them, cooked them food, sat down with them, chit chatted. And at, at first our meetings, and we had a Bible study forum if they wanted to join, that was counted as one of their meetings, their official meetings. And then as time went on, and we got to know everybody in this transitional housing, got to, I mean, and it was very, a very good relationship. Well, all of a sudden, the rules changed, and no longer were they required to undergo any meetings. There was no requirement. It was indeed what George W. Bush once said was the soft bigotry of low expectations. Well, they're too dumb, you know. They're they're homeless. They got nothing. We, the government, know more than they do. We know best for them. And it was so it was so offensive. The people who worked on staff, we all looked at each other and go, "What the hell's going on, man?" I mean, they don't have to do anything. And all of a sudden, they cycled them through. They they made sure that they got their boxes checked. They got their grant money. And that was it. And it was, we were devastated. We were devastated because that meant our friends were getting cycled through before they got their, got a job, got a housing voucher. I mean, it, we were devastated. And um, then all of a sudden, you know, it's just a, it's a, a way to just churn people through the machine. So they're not helping anybody. They're not helping anybody. And I can tell you why they did this. Cause I spoke with the, some of the executive director directors in the West coast that had made this decision because they all basically did at the same time. And first of all, I think I love his quote. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. What George Bush said. Um, so this was again, as everything got radicalized, you know, eight or so years ago, they finally just announced that, you know, uh, the root cause of homelessness is capitalism. And if a person is on the streets due to capitalism, they are a victim of capitalism. And as a victim, we should not have expectations of them because it's not their fault. Therefore, all bad behavior needs to be justified. That is why they did this is because they are victims of capitalism, all bad behavior, theft, person-to-person -person crimes, drug use, uh, trash, all that stuff should be justified because it's not their fault. So this is the rationale. This is why they did this. I mean, of course, to you and I, that's completely insane, but that's how a majority of the nonprofits agreed. And of course, 
why wouldn't they do this? Because now there was even less accountability. <laughs> now they didn't even have to do the bare minimum. Now it's just, let's just take the money. And this isn't, of course, all nonprofits, because I, I always have to say this now, because after I do these things, I get attacked. I'm not talking about all of them. I'm talking about the major ones that have been getting the major funding for the decades that have created this mess. There are some solid, small nonprofits really, really trying to make a real difference out there. And there's some solid faith-based programs doing that. Mm -hmm. I am talking about the ones that created this homeless industrial complex that are mm -hmm. still out there every day and still the ones, sadly, they get all the funding and the ones that we are counting on to end this crisis. So and NGOs, it's not happening. these non-governmental these, uh, non organizations, these NGOs, these yes. nonprofits are the ones that are basically carrying out the task of government. And this is happening at every area of government. We have NGOs doing everything. And we cede to them the power of the people without us knowing about it, without us ever having voted in those people. And we have no representation. And indeed, what happens is they carry on through their NGO, their charitable organization, their nonprofit, their political bent of the people they think are paying the bills. Not all. Just the ones who are paying the bills who happen to be in power that time. And right now it's the radical Democrats. And that is who is paying for this. And so they will do their bidding. They are political actors being paid by the state to do things that they think we to do what they want to do because they're not doing what we want to do. We want to stop seeing all the hot and cold running bodies on the street. We want to see REI, <clears throat> excuse me, REI back in the city. We want to see even Ludi Vuitton uh, having a decent day at, at the office. We are sick and tired of the Apple store of being, uh, you know, set on fire for yeah. God's sake. I mean, I worked, I Nike mean, I'm tired closed. of Nike, Nike, yeah, Nike, closed. Nike closed, Nike, Portland, Oregon <laughs> folks or Beaverton, whatever, same difference. Yeah. Uh, they closed because they could not secure the safety of their employees. That is the sum Correct. total of their reason for getting out. And Be this is the problem. Because there's no, because also, you know, when you're homeless, uh, because of the very lax laws, such as we have, you've, you know, Mike Schmidt, our DA, um, won't really press charges on anybody and we're the, this sends the wrong message to the criminals and again not all homeless are criminals but a lot of homeless i've interviewed said of course we're we're, we're going to do this it's our way of getting our needs met and there's there's zero consequences and that's sad and even the cops really know it's a waste of time to chase a person down and book them knowing they get released the same day and then uh charges are dropped so now the cop is stuck doing hours of paperwork, and it was a huge waste of time. That is the world we live in. This is what's going on because, sadly, the district's attorney office became you know, very radicalized too. And the result is people are being victimized every day. You know, uh, One thing I've learned on the streets because I do this a lot on Twitter is I interview tons of people, and the last – few weeks i've interviewed a handful of women who basically said you know i've been sexually assaulted multiple times and they never get caught for a there's no cops around no one's even going to call the police anyway but it's just the the bad bad seeds and that's like the you know five percent of the homeless are really causing a lot of the problems like they're extreme and for them it's just like disneyland they could do whatever they want and it is not okay 
and they will sometimes they've I've interviewed them and they think it's hilarious. They're like, I, I'll, I'll get away with this until someone tells me to stop. That's basically what they're saying. And I have to also say, because I've talked to several concerned homeowners and businesses who have told me if the government isn't going to do something, eventually the citizens are. Yeah, well, but they'll get they'll get prosecuted. They will. But they're getting frustrated because they're getting victimized. They're losing their businesses. Uh, you know, they scared to leave their out, you know, go outside their outdoors because there's zero accountability. And that is simply not OK. And honestly, what's frustrating is for the good homeless out there that are in a tight spot and kind of got screwed, you know, like it could be medical issues or divorce or just bad decisions, but they're generally good people. They're falling through the cracks because they also are getting victimized by this group of people that have basically controlled the streets. And that's really sad, too, because you got to remember there's it's not all homeless or bad because there's some good homeless who just ended up in that situation and desperately want help but aren't getting it. I feel badly for the women out there. I really do. I used to talk to women all the time who were afraid for their lives or afraid to be of being sexually assaulted while they were trying to sleep. They never got enough sleep. It would induce psychosis and, it, and on and on and on it would go. And I remember now going back, you've been around for a while. Remember the family in downtown Portland, the group of quote unquote homeless crazy people who ended up murdering someone. Um, well, you know, there's a rampaging group of people. They, I got chased by these people one time when I was filling yep, in on yep, the radio. Yep. Um, they, it was pushed, they pushed one of their, uh, one of their own off the bridge. I remember that. Yeah. And that's what they did. They took matters in their own hands. And so I remember the family very well. And so they killed that poor girl. She was 19 or so. And uh, she was actually killed on the steel bridge and then just pushed over. So she didn't die from falling in the river. They killed her before they pushed her in. And so that was, I remember that incident very, very well. So to bring it all back then, no. So what you know, Kevin Dahlgren is in Portland, Oregon, but he also keeps track of Seattle. And, and indeed, it's the same stuff happening along the West Coast, all down, all throughout California, all throughout Oregon. All, this is 40%. No, correction. I was going to say 40% of all homeless are in California. And I, actually, I think that is true. Um, it's shocking because we act, the West Coast acts as a honeypot because it's offering people, it's basically paying people to be homeless. Uh, that's not an ex exaggeration. They are literally paying people to be homeless. And one one more observation I want you to sort of riff on this, if you would. And that is, uh, so I'm in Orange County, and there was a huge homeless encampment in Orange County on the grounds of the Justice Center. And uh, so in Santa Ana, there was a huge tent city. Um, eventually, they cleared it out because, you know, eventually, they do have to worry about disease and that sort of thing. But when I was there, I was actually during doing jury duty and talked to a gal who works for the county who was there connecting people with with uh, you know, services and that sort of thing. Uh, so I says, hey, whoa, so what are you doing here? And, -ba -ba and uh, uh, she says, oh, yeah, I says, well, so what are all these people doing here? camping out here. I mean, why not somewhere else? She goes, oh, this is, this is, they're close to getting where, the, you know, where they get their checks and they can sleep here for free. And then they use all their money for their drugs. You know, basically next question. Yeah, we all know. They, they you know, they're smoking their rent while they live in a tent. Yep. And, and we're enabling that. We're allowing this to happen. We're, we're not, 
there is a profit motive uh, that, you know, what once was a cause has become this multi-million dollar industry. And because there's so many jobs and funding attached to ending homelessness, there's no motivation to actually officially end it because then everybody loses their jobs and loses the funding. And so really they've kind of pivoted a little bit and made it more about a person's right to be homeless and let's just help them be comfortable on the streets, such as tarps, tents, harm reduction, right? And stuff like that, but it doesn't actually help them. It's no permanent solution. And so they very strategically uh, pivoted that and really not many people noticed where they even said they've they've kind of changed their policy where they're not here to solve the problem. They're here to just help the people remain comfortable on the streets uh, until, you know, <laughs> capitalism is abolished. So it's, it's, it's crazy. And it's just really sad. It's like we as humans really have a responsibility to, to tell a person that, slowly killing themselves this is not okay that you can do better and that i am here to help but my gosh you do this now you actually get criticized for it you know like what i've i've done extensive outreach in seattle washington and uh, i used to go to camps where activists would show up the antifa kids right and they would scream at us for hours as we're trying to do legitimate outreach, like real effort to get these people off the streets. And they would scream, they're not ready. They're not ready. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? It's not for you to say. It's for the homeless person to decide, right? And in one incident, which is just really sad, is I was out there with We Heart Seattle, Andrew Suarez and myself. And um, I was their president for two years and I just resigned so I could focus all my energy on um, Portland. But that's a wonderful organization in Seattle, We Heart Seattle. They, they do fantastic work. And so we had known this kid who was interested in treatment, and he was in his early 20s, and he was regularly messaging Andrea. And, you know, he was very ambivalent about when to say yes and no. Finally, one day he said, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And, that, and as a drug and alcohol counselor, I knew that time was right. We have to do this. So Andrea shows up. Activists happened to be there, and they surrounded his tent, linked arms to prevent her from getting the treatment. So guess what happened right after? He died of an overdose. Died. They, they prevented her ability. She got him a room. She was going to pick him up, take him into treatment, and they blocked it. And... Oh God, that just pisses me off to even to share the story again is, you know, they killed this kid. Now, the reason why they blocked her is because they don't support We Heart Seattle because they thought she was going to do more harm than good and that he wasn't ready. Well, it wasn't their place. So that was an extremely tragic example uh, of, of these activists who aren't really willing to work with anybody. And... I've always said, let's sit down and talk. I mean, I don't really always agree with you, but you're obviously passionate about this. So maybe we could talk and understand where you're coming from and why you felt the need to do this. But they won't, of course, because I do really want to just sort of understand everyone's point of view because I, we kind of 
in some ways they all need to work together to solve this crisis, but not everyone's willing to come to the table. Some people just want to continue to burn down the city. You're tr- you're trying to keep society connected and and together. Yes, they're in they're on the side of chaos. So you are, are working and- toward two entirely different ends. And you know, let me ask you this because I have a feeling. This has something to do with this uh, Antifa clash with you in Seattle and We Heart Seattle. Uh, you had mentioned that there were people who are positioning tents in certain areas who aren't necessarily homeless, but they're doing it for another reason. Tell me about that. Well, it's kind of a common practice. It really, I think, started in Seattle and I just you know, started to happen in Portland fairly recently um, is these activists will just simply erect tents in parks, not for anyone specific, but just for anyone who happens to wander by. But I think that's completely insane because with all the time and effort it took to get the tent, to spend your day off and to do this, why not spend all your energy on just trying to house a person, right? It's almost like you might as well be encouraging them to be homeless. And why are you putting it in a public park? You know, at least put it in your backyard, you know, like do something. Well, you but assume like, they have a home themselves. They're just yeah, and drafting exactly. on somebody else in low likelihood. Well, yeah. I mean, most live in their basements uh, on their parents' home, it seems, because I've never – I don't think many of them work. They just – because they have a lot of time to do this. Mm-hmm. But it's like erecting a tent doesn't solve the pro- – doesn't solve this, especially if it's someone specific – uh, uh, the w- worst winter storm of the year and there's no other options and it's 10 p.m. I might get that, but not like just randomly on a summer's day, erect 20 tents in a park. And in some of the tents, they will put up tables and put freshly baked cookies to really almost encourage like, it's oh, like cookies. Hey, boo-boo, yeah. there's some and cookies in the, in exactly. the forest. So, so <laughs> wow. someone asked me, they said, well, what is the rationale with that? I mean, and They've never really admitted it, but in my opinion, it, I feel like I've noticed it always happens to parks that have been recently restored that start looking nice and people have this like sigh of relief like, oh, my park's back. Then they do this and I think it's because they need the blight to be continued to be seen because if the blight is seen, it fits their narrative that capitalism has created this mess. And if – they notice a government is starting to do the right things and making a real difference and picking up the trash and housing people that goes against their narrative. And so they need to continue this in a very disingenuous way. And I would, I would say, look, if that's not true, then tell us why, because it can't be just for like, well, if a homeless person needs it, it's there for them. Right. Well, I would say, hold on to a tent for someone who specifically needs it. And if you've made every effort in the world uh, to help them in every other way and it's not working, th- that's going to be okay to me because they're still human, right? I don't want anybody to freeze to death. But you need to make the effort. You can't just stop with the tent. You know, there has to be much more than that. And well, it's not I mean, happening. It's an Antifa trick. I mean, it's the anarchists and the Antifa people doing that or they're, they're, yeah. they're radical buddies. I mean, they're all the same people, by the way. You've noticed that, I take it. 
that they're, you know, the same people that were Portland Peaceful Response and Answer are the same people who were in the drum circles at Friday at Four, who are the same people who were the animal and uh, environmental terrorists, and there were terrorists. Then that was the other family. And then we have, those are the same people, and on and on and on. Now we're into their kids. We're pretty sure that we've got their kids involved, who are, you know, 38 years old and you know, the same people, oh, you know, and the schools are, are encouraging it. They want to create activists and not students and scholars and people who want to find truth and beauty. Um, so we've got a problem. And I'll, speaking of schools, um, about a year and a half ago, Andrea and I from We Heart Seattle did a Zoom with the Dean of Social Work at the University of Washington, who basically was proud proud of her activist students and and really kind of encouraged this bad behavior because she also was an anarchist and she's the one getting uh uh she's the one educating these new outreach social workers so it starts at the education it starts with the parents but it could also stop with the parents and stop with the schooling but that's what we learned and we were blown away we we're like are you kidding me and this is the dean and i think it's certainly happening in the schools locally were you really well, surprised? I, you know, I, I, I always have faith in my human beings and I always hope for the best. But mm -hmm. I, I was like, oh, so I was a little surprised. I was like, come on, lady, you're killing me here. And yeah. I want to back up quickly and say even with these uh, activists, still to this day, I genuinely just am trying to understand their point of view because there's got to be some kind of way to working together. I, you know, anyone with that much passion can maybe change their ways. But I, and that's I'm only saying this because I just I don't like to just hate on people. I really oh, yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to understand what's uh, going on. Listen, anybody I'm not can, a hater. Right? Anybody can have a road to Damascus moment. Yeah, I want I, and, and I have to remember they're they're kind of at times I hate to say it, young and dumb. Yeah, they could they could change their minds. Absolutely. I mean, I was a, I was a 20 year old idiot. Right. Like I, I had all these views of the world that were completely incorrect because I had a narrow worldview. And so I, I have made an effort to be like, I just want to talk and understand. But when you talk with the 95 percent of them, they're so mean, <laughs> they're so rude. And it's just like they don't want to hear. And that's just so frustrating to me. It's a violence. It's a violence in speech. It's a violence in um, activity. I mean, they were empowered and emboldened by what happened in 2020. They were allowed to wreak havoc in Portland and the city let them do it. The Everyone let them do it and they were rewarded for it. So that which is rewarded is repeated. And that's why the problems exist in the city of, of Portland. Um, so now you, one of the things about with activism in Portland is there's been an active way since certainly since 2011 to squat in properties that are uh, that are uh, not owned or at least not occupied by the owners. And this in the housing realm has, I imagine, caused some some problems. Or, you know, of course, when, considering that all the people on the streets and that sort of thing, they think they need to be in housing of some sort. And, hey, here's a vacant house. How, what has that done to the issue in Portland, in Seattle? Well, it's uh, definitely more common practice in Seattle, but I have seen it in Portland. And, you know, this is a, uh, this is a time where I, I try to understand, I'm trying to understand why they're doing this. Like, what is the purpose? And in their mind, 
they they see it as if there's an empty house and there's a homeless person, let's connect the two, right? But I would argue there's other housing available for these people if they make the effort and put it through because no one gets to live in free housing. You and I don't. Nobody does. And that's just not simply fair. Right. Well, right? of course. There, well, and yeah. this is obviously – and Appeal it's owned fairness. by someone else. That's capitalism, but man. They also have a strong – but. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is that they don't like the idea of anyone owning a business or a home. Homeownership is bad. You're not supposed to own anything. It's supposed to be this completely free society. And so uh, I've even heard lately that they don't even like car owners anymore. Oh, like, oh no. that's All, a, all that's, of it is bad. That's a given in Portland. I mean, that is a given. There's yeah, bike and that's just and, like, yeah. my God, you just can't win. Mm-hmm. It's like you. No. It's like, what is it that you want? But so, yes, this is this has been a problem here. They want the chaos. And, you know, a homeless person is never going to get their needs met squatting in a home very likely with no electricity. You know, it's like there's but, you know, they're doing it to to make a point. You know, I mean, there's a reason they want the cops to show they want they want the media to go there because they need a platform. This is why they do it. Right. They know it's people are going to notice. And and I hate to say it, but. Much like that poor kid that died in Seattle, they're using the homeless as pawns, right? Do you really think they care about the homeless person? They're doing this because they're trying to push their own their own agenda. I think it has very little to do with actually homeless people. They're just using the homeless as an excuse to do this because if they really cared about the homeless, they wouldn't just erect tents. They would spend all their energy learning the system and getting them in the housing I mean, they're all online, which means they know computers. They could do GoFundMes. They could find ways of paying the rent of these people to help them, to get them the treatment, but they don't. And that's what bothers me is these simply – the homeless are are pawns in their power play, it seems. So we've decided that this is – you and I agree that this is a drug problem And, and alcohol, same thing. Drugs, drugs are drugs. So, okay, now what do we do? And what do you, and why, for example, I feel like when I've spoken to people who are on the street and who have been uh, just a slave to drugs, that they need something much, much bigger. People I've seen in recovery say, I couldn't do it without God. I couldn't do it without a 12-step program. That's not something the state offers. So how do we really help these people? Do you agree with that premise first? And secondly, how do we help? Yeah, or not even God, but something spiritual, which is the 12-step philosophy. Um, I have multiple family members that are in recovery, right? They're all drug-free now, but they are in recovery, you know, obviously probably for the rest of their lives. You know, they're going to always – a person with addiction, the addiction really never goes away. They They just don't use, you know? Um, we need to pivot from this housing first model to a recovery based model. If 80% of every homeless person on the streets has a history of addiction, we need to focus all our energy on the right type of support to help with addiction. That means detox, recovery, treatment, counseling, intensive case management, intensive outreach. That's how we're going to solve this. Yes, we need more 12 step programs and faith based programs because it's, uh, I, I, People who have a strong connection to something spiritual are 10 times more likely to recover because that's oftentimes what's lacking in their uh, 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 lacking in their really soul. And so, yes, I would agree. Exactly. 
So that's what's needed. If we do this, the homeless piece isn't gonna is is not gonna seem as difficult to solve, and it's gonna feel much more manageable. Because if we can actually tackle this addiction issue, what's left is just a lot of people that now just need to learn new life skills and get off the streets. Not just this huge <laughs> uh, weight on their shoulder, which is fentanyl or something else. So start with recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned that there were, uh, before we went on the air, that there are encampments. I mean, all over Portland, there are encampments, but there happens to be a larger than most or, or more uh, long-term encampment that you actually walked to. It took you a couple hours to get there. Did it really? And what did you find when you got there? Yeah, it's along the Willamette River. And uh, I've, I counted nine homes. They look like homes, just like tiny homes, hand-built, doors, windows, solar power, chimneys, uh, porches, everything, right? It's quite fascinating, really. Compostable toilets. obviously, these toilets. took years to build. What's that? Compostable toilets. Yeah. The, mm, I saw no. one bathroom with oh, no. no plumbing. So really, it was just like a hole or it goes to the river. And of course, that's kind of the hey. biggest concern is where does the waste go? Because yeah. if there's a good 15 people there going to the bathroom five times a day, that's going to add up, right? So the houses were really impressive and incredible. And I call them driftwood homes because some of the homes were built out of thousands of pieces of driftwood. So absolutely fascinating. And really, I was kind of impressed. Uh, you know, and two thoughts I have on this. One was... How, as a government, did we allow this to continue and how did they get away with it? But two, this is a natural result uh, when a government does nothing to end this crisis. The homeless are going to uh, adapt and build their own housing. And so you almost have to kind of – yeah, you almost have to like be impressed with them because it's like these were pretty cool homes. I still don't think they ever get their needs met there. But like it's a natural result when there is a do-nothing approach in this county to actually ending this crisis, eventually people are going to build their own homes, which is really not okay because we don't want our beautiful city and really our West Coast to become uh, um, a Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome post-apocalyptic dystopian nightmare, which is really kind of what I saw. Like this is like the first few steps. Wow. Uh, yeah, the city, of course, amazing. has embraced. Still, it's very of, impressive to be uh, to be there. The uh, city has allowed these two huge. I don't know how many they have now, but the dignity, so-called dignity village, where they let people just sort of build stuff with found materials. Uh, they took them. They gave them free free reign to do whatever they wanted. They didn't require them to pass any sort of uh, uh, engineering standards or uh, any anything. I mean, they didn't have to do it. They got to siphon off the local uh, energy from from the uh, garbage dump. They got, I mean, it was just all kinds of stuff. It wasn't a garbage dump, it was something else. But it was county property or city property. And I mean, how many of those are still around Portland? Are they still proliferating or are they still just set to maybe two of them because that when you, when you just, you, you, I mean, they threw out the rules for these guys. And so why those people on the Willamette river are going, well, they did it for dignity village. Why wouldn't they do it for us? Yeah. I would argue this is where this whole mess started in Portland is when we allowed this, when we allowed dignity village is kind of when this started. Now I wasn't 
absolutely against the idea of Dignity Village if I thought of it as a temporary place before they got into real housing. But that's not the case is it just continued to grow and grow and grow. And I would even go in there and there was never any outreach workers there. I met the guy who kind of started it back in the day. Uh, and that's the problem is it kind of just sent the message that, wow, I guess why go into traditional type housing where there's rules when the city is basically saying you get to do this, right? And there was, of course, rampant drug use and all these other problems. So that was a concern. So there's really only a couple of them. I mean, what's kind of replaced it is the kind of the tiny homes everywhere. And the tiny homes, as much as they say it's managed well, there's a lot that are managed pretty poorly. You know, it, you know, it really kind of depends on the nonprofit, uh, you know, because that's what because it all really depends on who's managing it. Right. And I've, I've gone to a few solid tiny home villages in Portland that are, seem to be relatively safe. So, again, I'm not just bashing everybody and everything because it's fun to bash people. There are good programs, but there's not enough of them. There's still overwhelmingly a lot of dysfunction and incompetence that's allowing this crisis to continue to grow because the fact is we're hiring the wrong people that lack passion and just lack the skill sets to solve this very complex issue. Well, when you hire, you know, liberal studies majors and and they have no uh they have no objectable objective uh, life skills uh and they have no skill set, um you're going to get people who don't know really what the hell they're doing. Yep. And I, I went to the, I went to those schools <laughs> and I, but you know, and when I wasn't prepared at all to work in the field, I mean, by the, in the early nineties, when I started working at the homeless shelters and stuff, I was like, man, I have no idea what I'm doing. They did not prepare me for this. I was like, I, I was, I felt completely at a loss with how to do anything. Right. I was not given any sort of, uh, again, this is 30 years ago. So I've learned a lot since then. Right. But I, I wasn't really given any type of tools to succeed to help these people, right? And um, that's sort of the case to these day to this day, right? Because imagine now being a 24-year-old that just got your first bachelor's and a professor tells you homelessness will end when capitalism ends. Why would you make any effort to end homelessness until that happens? So now you're just a paycheck player, uh, paycheck player who's going there and saying, hey, how are you today? Would you like another sandwich? Because they're waiting for the revolution to take over. And now, you know, with, whereas me, I wake up every day, me and my colleagues, with a fire on my butt being like, my God, I have to end this crisis. My number one goal in this world is to end this humanitarian crisis. That is what I was put on this earth to do is I know that if we can end homelessness, it'll benefit the, the homeless person and the community. It'll help everybody. And I strongly believe we can do this and we can end this crisis in months, not years, if we work together. But the problem is people don't want to work together. People don't agree. People still are stuck in this housing first model uh, BS and harm reduction and don't really believe in accountability or purpose and all that other stuff. The stuff that actually matters, the stuff that actually is going to get people to think differently about the world around them and to finally help them help themselves. Measure 110 certainly did not help that. That was another George Soros plan wherein the voters of Oregon were asked to uh, legalize small portions of drugs so that, uh, you know, personal use drugs, hard drugs, fentanyl, opioids, uh, heroin, 
um, those kinds of things that are, these are not first time drug users taking this stuff. And how has that impacted the Portland and Seattle homeless issues? Uh, It's made things, you know, three times worse. I mean, it was terrible before this, but it was terrible timing. We decriminalized drugs right as there was the rise in fentanyl. So we have the strongest drug basically in history entering the streets in which everybody is using it, whether they like to or not, with the decriminalization of drugs. You combine those two, it's this recipe, it's the perfect storm, and it's just blown up, and it's just killing people left and right, and it's absolutely devastating. It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, because I'm out there every day, and it's absolutely devastating. You go downtown Portland, and you just see people languishing and dying every day, and what you don't see is outreach workers out there trying to make any genuine effort to help them, you know? And when I walk into the harm reduction clinics, they smile and be like, wow, we gave these individuals the right to use, but when they're ready, we'll help them. I'm like, well, they're not going to be ready. They're not going to ask for help. You need to tell them, you know, you need to be assertive and tell them. And that just, that's, you know, it's just, it's loving them to death. And I absolutely just don't understand that. Can't Narcan your way out of it. Yeah. Well, in Narcan, it takes uh, for a regular fentanyl overdose, it takes three to five uh, Narcans to actually have a person come to. What's really terrifying is the new thing. Yeah, it's not one, it's three to five. Holy crap. Because Narcan was not really invented specifically for fentanyl. It was for a a lower type, a different type of opioid such as heroin. Uh, And the new thing is because people are building a tolerance to heroin, uh, they're adding something called trank to the heroin, and trank is a horse tranquilizer. And a horse tranquilizer enhances the fentanyl and makes it last longer and stronger. Like ketamine? But also what it does is – what? Is it yeah, like ketamine it going in the causes you to, Yeah, it often talk, uh, causes you to pass out, which means this is how people are dying more because it's a tranquilizer. And so you can't use an Arcan because people are now dying in their sleep. Because fentanyl lasts for this short wi- time, this short window of like 30, 45 minutes, but trank could last four to five hours. So when you're seeing people lying on the street passed out, for all we know, they're overdosing while unconscious. But we don't know oh. this because they're not screaming for help. And so that's what is happening by adding the trank is people are dying in their sleep. And that's com- absolutely devastating. And so that's the new thing is they're adding this. Uh, to the fentanyl to make it stronger. Portland is dying so it's in terrifying. its sleep. The entire yep. city's dying in its sleep. That's a good description. That's sad. Well, Kevin Dahlgren, I've taken up more than enough of your time, and I really appreciate your time today to talk about this issue because uh, people are terrified of it. They From everywhere, from San Diego to L.A. to San Francisco – to Portland, Eugene, Seattle, Tacoma. We're seeing it all over in our cities. It's it's engulfing a collection of people who were very uh, fragile before, and now they are cast to the wind. And we can't help them unless we do. And the cities has, exactly. It's city uh, is not cities aren't helping. They're doing the exact opposite of helping. Thank you. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me on. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple Podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>